Tonight we are going to be in Exodus chapter 3, but before we get there, we remember that Moses, his name is being drawn out of the water because his mom put him in a basket and his sister watched him and the queen of Egypt, whoever that was, uh, took him and, and made, her, made, made him his, her own. And, uh, and so Moses became this Hebrew little baby, became the prince of, of Egypt uh, as the son of this Egyptian uh, princess. And uh, it seems like 40 is the, the number. So uh, he was okay with that until a point. And then about 40, I guess, whether you live to be 60 or 120 like Moses, I guess 40, you can have a midlife crisis. I don't know, but he no longer would, was satisfied with all of the exuberance and excesses of this royal life. It actually sickened him, as we read in the book of, of Hebrews. And so he went out to his brethren, and um, the Egyptian was just doing his job, which meant beating, <laughs> probably almost to death or to death, one of the Hebrews. And Moses stopped him and, and ended up killing the guy, the Egyptian. And uh, that's illegal. And he, even if for the prince of Egypt couldn't do that, he, he quickly buried him in the sand and hopefully that was going to be the end of it. Well, the next day he went out and there were two Hebrews about ready to beat each other to death. And he said, brothers, brothers, your, your brothers, stop this. And it, it actually tells us in, in, in Hebrews that one of them, or in the book of Acts, one of them pushed Moses away. So they had no fear of him. They had no respect for him. I wonder if the second day he went out, all his Egyptian garb was off, and he was really trying to look like a Hebrew and just wear regular clothes. I don't know. They knew who he was, who he was but they weren't respecting him as a prince of Egypt, pushed him away and said, what are you going to do, kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And he realized that was known. And uh, he, he fled at that point to the land of Midian. A couple of interesting points that you wouldn't get reading the book of Exodus, but yet we find it in the book of Hebrews and Acts. One of them is when they hid Moses in the Nile River amongst the bulrushes, it wasn't because they were afraid of, of the edict or afraid of Pharaoh. I mean, as I read Exodus, it looks like, oh, they're afraid. I don't want this baby in my house crying all day. I'll get caught and, and I'll get killed or a baby will get killed. Or, but it actually, it actually says in Hebrews eleven twenty three, it makes it very clear. They were not afraid of the king's command. That they hid him in that because that was by faith. The Lord had really showed him to do that. And, uh, you know, we don't, it doesn't say that God spoke to them. Um, and gave them this idea. But the idea is that they were walking by faith. When they saw Moses, he was a proper, beautiful child. God had something in store here. That's whether it was them or God or part them, part God. It was, it was the Lord's plan that this baby would be put where he was and watched over by his sister. And it had nothing to do with fear. And then also later when Moses let, fled, from Egypt down to Midian, it tells us in Hebrews eleven twenty seven. It once again, not fearing the wrath of the king, that Moses didn't 
run because he was afraid of getting killed or afraid of what Pharaoh thought about what he did in killing the Egyptian. He knew that he had done what was right in that situation. And again, as I read the book of Exodus, it looks to me like he is running out of fear and running for his life. But but interesting that, that both of these New Testament commentaries by the Holy Spirit make it clear that both of these instances, it was not fear, it was faith. And they're in the hall of faith for that. And so... Again, we cannot look on the inward heart of the man. Only God can. We can only look on the outward man. Outwardly, it looked like they were afraid. Inwardly, nope. It was total faith. And a matter of fact, when Moses fled Egypt, it tells us in Hebrews 11.27, he actually endured as seeing him who was invisible. That he he was fleeing from Pharaoh just crying out, God, I want to know you. God, I, I want to see you. God, draw me to yourself. Reveal yourself to me. That, that's what was going on in his mind. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to get killed. Oh, I'm afraid of the Pharaoh. Oh, I'm afraid of the Egyptians. It wasn't even in his mind. The, 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 the real pain, the suffering he was going through was wanting to know God in a deeper way. Pretty radical when we look at this. And so 40 years in Egypt, and then 40 years later again, God would speak to him in the burning bush we're going to see tonight. And then 40 years later, he'll die. 40, 40, 40. And then, of course, the children of Israel are in the Egypt for 400 years, sort of 40 times 10, uh, a very difficult time. And it's interesting that the second day when the Hebrew guy pushed him away and said, who are you? Are you some kind of ruler over us? We don't acknowledge you. It tells us in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 25, for he, Moses, supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. And they did not understand. So why was this so crushing to Moses? Because he really believed he heard from God. He really believed as he discovered, I'm a Hebrew in the house of the king. And he had been raised up in their education. And he had learned how to battle with the top warriors of the day. He, he, He was a great speaker and took debating classes. And there was nothing that he wasn't, a sufficient in in leading these Hebrew people. And he really had a sense, I really believe I've heard from God. And at that moment, when they said, who are you? Are you going to be a judge and a leader over us? And you're going to kill me like you did the Egyptians? And they had no respect. They had no insight. Like, whoa, what, why are you telling, what are you telling us what to do and not to do. Is, is God raising you up, Moses, to lead us out of bondage? That's what he thought they were going to say. But instead, they're just like, what do you think you are, a leader amongst us? And it crushed him, literally crushed him. And, and so when he left, he's just like, ah, oh, I don't know God's will. I don't know how to hear God's voice. I, I, I'm, I'm, he's just, all I want to do is just, no, God. I mean, he didn't lose in faith. He didn't stumble in his faith. He was just crushed 
thinking, God's hand and God's timing was in this. And as we're going to see as the book opens up, Moses really had it all right. It just wasn't going to be by the arm of his flesh, right? Remember Paul there in, in 2 Corinthians 12. He's going, God, I, I needed to die. <laughs> he says in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, he goes, man, I was pushed above, above measure, beyond strength, despairing of life itself, had the sentence of death within myself. And, 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 and then when I thought it's all over with, the God delivered me. And then in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he said, man, I, I, I had this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. We don't know what that was. But he goes, that was it. I told God, I can't, I can't do anything more. And then God said, yeah, in your weakness, my strength will be made perfect. That's really the story of Moses, isn't it? It wasn't until he had no abilities <laughs> His great orator ability, Acts 7 tells us, we're going to find out next week in chapter 4, it was gone. He, he had a, you know, some kind of half stroke and his face was palsied or, you know, he got a lisp or busted some teeth out and couldn't talk right. I don't know. But all the, all the things he thought were going to be attributes of his that God could use he, he didn't have any of those at 80 years old. And, um, and so this is where we, we find Moses. Interesting, though, he, 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 he's like, I'm yours, God, and, and it doesn't matter. My life is yours, and I'm fine not accomplishing anything. I'm, compl- I'm fine not being significant. I'm fine of not being some great man of history, and he took care of another man's sheep. (laughs) The poorest people in the caste system, the least in the caste system this day were shepherds. And not only was Moses a shepherd, he was an 80-year-old guy who didn't even own his own sheep. He was just an employee of a guy who owned sheep. There, There is no lower to go in the caste system of this day. He's this 80-year-old guy taking care of somebody else's sheep. And it, it, we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 21, that he was content. Let, let me tell you, content like this, is, it's hard to find. He wanted nothing more. He wanted to do nothing more. He wanted to be nothing more. He, he was just content being the lowest of the caste system. He, he was fine that people saw him as this invisible guy when he went through the towns. He was fine to his own wife and his own kids that I I don't even own anything. (laughs) All I am is a a guy who takes care of my father-in-law's sheep. He didn't care. He, He really, truly had no pride, no arrogance. We're gonna learn later, he was truly the meekest, humblest guy on earth. But I wonder if, it didn't come so easy. I wonder if Moses getting content didn't take the entire 40 years to get there. I don't know. But, it, you know, I think it's important that we don't just go by that verse and say, oh, Moses is content and, and go on. So when he, God comes to talk to him, he, he really doesn't want to move from where he's at. He's content. But it says in verse 23 of chapter 2, now it happened in the process of time. 
So as Moses was being content and really being insignificant and just taking care of a few sheep, um, God came to him. First Timothy tells us that godliness with contentment's great gain. Moses owned nothing, but Moses was one of the wealthiest guys on earth, if not the wealthiest guy on earth. Remember they asked Rockefeller, What's your, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to make a million dollars. He did it within a couple of years. They said, what are you going to do now? And he said, make $2 million. And it's amazing. Years ago, I heard the guy who owns the Dallas Cowboys, he, had, he, he was worth at that time $2 billion. And, and he was one of the few billionaires at the time. And they said, uh, they said, man, tell me, what's it like? He says, almost every night, I have the same nightmare where this happens and that happens and I literally lose everything and I'm completely broke. I wake up in a gold sweat that I lost everything. <laughs> it's like, man, I thought having a billion dollars, you'd never worry about money again. Quite the opposite. Moses had nothing, but he was rich. He had just a very peaceful, content life. You know, he was retired you know, fishing by the, the pond, right? Waiting for his social security checks to come in. He was just cruising. But 40 years later when he, he thought God forgot about him. No, I love Isaiah 30 verse 18. It's one of my favorite passages where it says, the Lord will wait that he may have be gracious to you. Therefore, he'll be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is the God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. The way I look at that Isaiah 3018 is, you know, the Lord's servant, it says in 2 Timothy, is not to strive. It's walking by faith and striving in the flesh are sort of the opposite of each other. And God's just waiting for you to quit with your fleshly attempts <laughs> to perfect what God's begun in the spirit. And he's waiting until you just exhaust yourself. He's waiting until you try every trick in the book and they all fail. And you finally come and just say, Lord, all I can do is be available. I have nothing to bring to this. I have nothing to offer. I'm just here. And in that reality, God's waiting and he's waiting on you that he could then be gracious to you and merciful to you and and you do it. I love that proverb. It says, when the Lord gives unto you, there's no sorrow with it. You know, man's clever. Man's, man's slick. We can accomplish a lot of stuff. It always blows my mind, the Tower of Babel. They were going to build a building and go right into God's living room. That was their plan. And it, God came down and says, everything they purposed in their heart, they will be able to accomplish because they're unified. Whoa. Yeah, we're made in God's image. We're very creative. We're very slick. We're very powerful in so many ways. But God is accomplishing it in his will, in his power, by his spirit, by the sweetness of his nature. Everything that he created in the universe as well as the spiritual universe, the physical and the spiritual are the same. You see beauty, you see order, you see power, but you see controlled power. 
People build their million dollar houses right on the edge of the sea and there's this powerful high tide, but they're not afraid of it. (laughs) Because God's so precise in all he does. And so God has his ways. I love Ecclesiastes 3.11, that whole verse. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. He's not going to reveal it. So blessed is the man, basically, and Moses is that blessed man who's going to walk by faith in God, by waiting on God. Sometimes that's the greatest amount of faith, is by waiting on God and his time and his way to do the things um, again in, in, in the way God wants to do it, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, and his timing. So chapter 3, verse 1. <laughs> Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So we find... It all came to a day. I don't don't think Moses woke up feeling like, wow, something special is going to happen today. But something God had planned. I I love that fact that it really is an adventure to follow Jesus. You never know what the day holds if you're in the spirit and and walking expectation of God and what he's going to do. He was tending the flock in the... King James, it says he kept the flock. And, and I like that better. And it's also in the perfect third person, masculine, plural, cons, um, consecutive. And I, I know you guys already knew that. James <laughs> looking at me like going, what? It, it literally is saying he, he, he did it and it was done. In essence, it's saying Moses kept the flock, and this is it. <laughs> there is no future plans. He, he was keeping the flock, and he was content, and there was no, there was nothing else. He was going to die doing this, in other words. This was, this was how the rest of his life, another 10 years, another 40 years, until I die, I'm going to be taking care of Jethro's flocks. And that's basically... He was resigned, finished, completed, passed in doing that. And again, Jethro or Ruel, his father-in-law was a priest of Midian. Remember the Midianites, we, we learn in Genesis 25 too. The second wife of Abraham, Keturah, she had a son named Midian. So if you would, this, this guy, Jethro, is his step-cousin, sort of. You know, they had the, the same grandfather through Abraham, but they had different women on. So it was not a complete, uh, they weren't Hebrews, but they, were, they all had the same father, Abraham. And so Jethro probably said, yeah, I'm from, uh, my father is Abraham. Oh, so is mine. Well, you came from Egypt. How can you be an Egyptian? No, I'm not an Egyptian, I'm a Hebrew. And uh, so it was, it was quite interesting thing as they, they came to this. He had seven daughters, it's pretty hard living out there in Saudi Arabia in the middle of nowhere, being the lowest of the caste system, and to find somebody to marry your seven daughters off. So I'm sure Jethro was very happy with going, yeah, I, sure. You have nothing? That's okay. I have seven daughters. I, I, I'll take whatever I can get. I, I don't know. But either way, um, 
he was a priest of Midian. It doesn't seem that he was a pagan, evil priest of some godless, pagan, evil religion. It seems that, that Jethro, to some degree, was following the God of Abraham. It doesn't seem that as Moses comes that there's this conflict between the two. It's almost insane. He's a priest of, of Midian that almost like, wow, we're on the same page here. That's the way it senses. And as you look at Exodus, that seems the way it plays out. Because later Jethro, as Moses is following God, Jethro just comes along and joins in as a part of it. His brother-in-law helps out and um, going spotting places out for in, in the distance for them to go and settle at. And, and, uh, and then Jethro, we're going to see him in chapter 18. He seems to have a lot of wisdom for Moses, um, practical wisdom on how to judge the people and stuff. So there, there's never a conflict. So it's very possible that, that in his own way, not a complete way, Nobody is really at a complete way following the God of Abraham. Even, I mean, if you think about how much they knew about God when you come to the end of the book of Genesis, it's almost nothing. It really is. It's so little. I mean, Abraham had his experiences talking to God and talking to Melchizedek and, and, and so forth. You know, Jacob had his, or Isaac had his little bit of experience. Jacob had his couple of experiences. But really nothing, if you were to sit down and say, who is this God that created the heavens and the earth? It wasn't like some gigantic bunch of theology and knowledge. It was just little, God told me this, God did this with me, God did that miracle, God wrestled with me. And, and at the end of it, you're just sort of scratching your head going, okay, he's unique, <laughs> He's powerful. He loves us. He's called us. That's great. I mean, I like everybody who likes me. God likes me. so, And he's got a plan for us. That's great. I, I mean, they, they knew God was for them. But outside of that, there really wasn't a whole lot. And now, 400 years in Egypt have gone by in a pagan, pagan culture full of idolatry. I don't think the children of Israel knew probably anything about God or very, very little, very confused. Think about us. What an amazing foundation our country, America, has had in laying down and building a country on Christianity and the Judeo-Christian ethic. And here we are 200 years later going, who's God? Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, you're evil. Oh, I hate you. You know, we used to burn witches. Now we want to burn the Christians. The witches want to burn the Christians. It's like, what? There's one man and one woman. You're evil. Are you telling me that my son, who's really now my daughter, is wrong? Are you telling, telling me that she's mentally ill? Are you telling me that she's distorting the image of God and what he created? It's like, 200 years later, we didn't make it 400 years. <laughs> we, we haven't even made it really 200 years. So, again, it, it's pretty amazing when you, when you think about this. But it seems like they're, they're, they, they were pretty much together. Now, it says here that he went to the backside of the desert. Now, some translations will translate this the west side of the desert. Why? Because in this culture, everything was based off them facing east. So 
when you, you face east, excuse me, east, um, to your left is always north and to your right is always south and behind you is always west. So this, this, some, some translate this to the west side, but in, in reality, the understanding of this, it's a very long ways away where there's nobody. That's what he's trying to say. Moses just wasn't taking care of the sheep. He was trying to get away from everybody. He was trying to go out to a place that nobody was going to be there once he got out there. That's the sense. He was trying to get as far away from everybody that he could. And, and uh, I, I, can, I can say, as you get older, that is definitely the way you feel. And Chuck is actually 80 years old. Chuck, he's on his cell phone. <laughs> you teenagers, you 80-year-old teenagers. I was asking, you're, you're 80 years old, and you like being by yourself, right, Chuck? You're 80 years old. You're 80 years old. And you, you, you like being by yourself. Well, that's where, that's where the Lord has it. Okay, okay. But trust me, you, you, you would seek it out if you didn't have it. <laughs> you know, I, I can tell you on a personal note, I, God's definitely had me out in the backside <laughs> just doing simple, insignificant things for seasons. I know when I graduated from college, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues and all of this, and, and the church I, I grew up in, the Nazarene church, would have nothing to do with this, and, and uh, I felt called to be a pastor at a very young age and knew that the Lord was going to do that, but I, I, at the same time, had no venue in which to make that happen, and, and it, it was bothering me, and I ended up becoming a carpenter, and I was working as a carpenter. Now, more than a carpenter, but, um, but I was, and I, and I finally just came to the point where I'm like, I'm at peace. I, I can just, at that, at that time I was going to Horizon, and, and, and I just like, I, I'll just wash feet. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go to church, find the lowliest jobs, and just do that until, and I really just had this story in my mind, until I'm 80. And I'm just like, Lord, if I am 80 years old when I get my first ministry, I'm perfectly fine. As long as I'm on the backside of the desert <laughs> with your presence and I'm just able to serve. It's simply, humbly, just serve. And I came to that place and, and um, I can tell you out of, the, out of the clear blue, the Lord opened doors for me to get into ministry and he, he did supernaturally speak to me to start Calvary Chapel San Diego down in the South Bay Area, San Diego. And uh, it, it, was, it was amazing. I didn't see it coming, didn't expect it. And the Lord, it's a very long story. But after 33 years of pastoring, I, I didn't expect the Lord to say, hey, well done. You're, you're finished here. And I'm like, okay, no problem. At 57 years old, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I found myself in the backside of the desert again. Here I am, Lord. I'm just going to serve and go get a job at 7-Eleven and, and say, oh, would you like us to start off that sort whatever you need? And, uh, you know, go be a security guard and, and just find a church and serve and wash feet. And, and I was fine, and the Lord spoke to me again. You know, hey, I have another season for you to pastor. And 
You guys know the story. I ended up here. And, but really, really here, even we're all sort of in the backside of the desert, aren't we? We're all here in this little fellowship, and we want to reach our Jerusalem, which is Rossmore community here. In the day and age, we're in, we're in the, the times where people are apostate. The majority of people in America calling themselves Christian absolutely insist that homosexuality is not a sin and that it should be allowed in the church. We should celebrate it. You should even have homosexual pastors and lesbian pastors. That's, that's the country we live in. If that's not apostasy, I don't know what is. But yet, really, there's very few. Remember Elijah? He's like, there's nobody. I'm the only one that's not bowing my knee to Bell. Remember that? What did the Lord say to him? Now, I, I got 7,000 prophets you don't know about. Not even counting all the people. They're there. But Lord, what do, you, what do you have? So in essence, we're here on the backside of the desert altogether, just waiting on the Lord going, okay, God, here we are. We, we want it, whatever is next. Jesus often does this to himself when he was alive. He often went into the wilderness and prayed. And then he often called his disciples into the wilderness, to the desert place to pray. He happened to be at Mount Horeb. I mean, understand that the place, the backside of the desert where Moses observes this burning bush we're going to discover here, it actually is a very significant place, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. We don't know where it is today. I think it's probably in Saudi Arabia area, but it's, we don't know. I mean, there's guys that always know. You can watch their YouTube channel. They'll convince you you're not even saved if you don't agree with them where Mount Sinai is. But um, fact is, we don't know. I think it's the same, Mount Horeb, Sinai. Most people do believe the same. Some believe it's one's a range and one's another portion of the mountain or whatever. But it's where the Ten Commandments later would be given. The fire of God would come. A lot of stuff happens there. This is not inside the promised land. It's probably in Saudi Arabia, like I said. But now in verse 2 and 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So it seems like Moses was not highly motivated to go and do anything. <laughs> so I was that shiny thing up on the hill. Ah, I'm not going to go. I'm 80 years old. I don't care. I'm just going to watch these sheep. It seems like maybe there's some pretty amazing things that Moses could have done, but he just had no interest in doing them, even no matter how spectacular it was. He, he just was not highly a motivated guy. So God now produces this situation where there's this phenomenal bush burning, which just whoosh, should be gone in a second. You guys ever light a Christmas tree on fire? Don't. It's very, very dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. But it literally disappears in a second. An entire tree just whoosh, very scary. I, th I think that's what he expected to see out there in the desert. Some big bramble bush that should just whoosh, disappear, but it doesn't. 
It keeps burning and burning and burning and, and it's not going out and it's not getting smaller. And, and finally, he goes there and the angel, it says, of the Lord. We, we've covered this. The word malach, it's the word messenger, ambassador. It's also translated angel. But there's many times in the Old Testament, we, it's called a theophany, a Christophany. And it's appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We've already seen it several times in the book of Genesis, haven't we? Where Jacob wrestled all night with God and, and, and he's wrestling with this angel and he's like, who are you? And then he realized I saw God face to face. Daniel and or Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace and another one walks in there. It was Jesus. Well, this is one of those times. And you say, well, why does it say angel? Well, that's, that's just the word messenger, ambassador. It, you know, Unfortunately, the, the translators, when they originally translated the King James Bible, just said when we see the word Moloch, we're going to translate it angel, unless it's absolutely unacceptable to translate it any other way. And, uh, and so, really, it should be translated the messenger, which is Jesus. Matter of fact, look right there in verse 6. The very end of verse 6, it says, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon what? God. <laughs> Okay, this wasn't an angel. This was God speaking to him, the messenger of the Lord, which we know as Jesus. Also in Mark 12, 26, Jesus actually says that. He's debating with the, the Sadducees, and he says, concerning the dead, they that rise have not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how what? God spoke to him, saying, Jesus says plainly, it was God speaking to Moses in that burning bush. It was actually him. Hebrews, Paul lets us know, <laughs> which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Paul, in essence, is saying, just like Jesus when he taught us to pray, our Father, but who art in heaven? Yes, we're, we're, we're near to him and we relationally are close to him, but we constantly are reminded we are in sinful bodies in this sinful world and God is holy and he's not corporeal as we are. He's incorporeal and, and he is in heaven and we are on earth. Let your words be few. And God is holy and we are in sinful flesh. And, and so while we now are living in this sinful flesh, we continually want to walk with the Lord, remembering that we are to be holy for our God is holy. And that when we are drawing near, just like Moses did, um, we need to cover our faces and, and realize and identify that fact that we are in the presence of God. In verse 4, so when, Mo, when, when the Lord, notice this, saw that the, he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, there it is again, verse 4, and Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not draw near this place. Take off your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon him. So the Lord saw, hey, yeah, I got his attention. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. We see these anthropomorphical things, you know, God speaking 
out of a bush or looking like a wrestler with Jacob or, you know, he, it's interesting how the God meets us, you know, later with Joshua, he looks like a soldier and Joshua is face to face with this soldier going, oh, who are you? Do I fight you? And then he realized, take off your sandals. He told to Joshua, this is holy ground. It's like, oh, I remember Moses having this at the burning bush. I'm having it with a soldier with a sword at my throat. Okay, God's unique. But nevertheless, I love that. In verse 2, it says the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, the ambassador of the Lord. Verse 4, it says, and the Lord Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the YHWH. And also in verse 4, God, Elohim, the messenger, the ambassador of the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, God, Elohim, is speaking to you. And he finally got his attention with this burning bush. And then God spoke to him. And it's a sense of urgency Moses, Moses, why did he say it twice? I think it was urgency. He saw him looking, and he's, he's starting to come over that way, and I don't know, it's up a hill, and oh, I'm 80 years old. I don't want to walk up that. And, and, and then he's looking a little closer, and Moses, Moses, what? He was staring at that bush and getting over there to it, just walking right up to it now. And, and, he, and then he gets a few feet from it, and God says, Stop. This is holy ground. You need to take off your sandals. So Moses, Moses, a sense of urgency. Moses says, here I am. I love looking through the Bible when God calls the people. And then they say, here I am. Abraham, God called out to him in Genesis 22. And, and Abraham said, here I am. Little Samuel, little boy. <laughs> God called out to him. Little Samuel said, here I am. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, Uriah died. You saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he said, whom shall I send? Whom shall go for him? Go for us. And Isaiah said, Lord, here I am. It's a powerful thing when God calls us. Literally, outwardly, like some of these situations are in our hearts. But to have that heart to say, here I am. I love Mary. It's like, how can I have a baby? I'm a virgin. And he says, well, the spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you. The power of the Almighty will overshadow you. And does that explain it? <laughs> and Mary's like, here I am. I'm yours. Be it unto me according to all that you've said. I don't think we get it. I don't think we understand it. But then we need to come to that place to realize you know, in our culture, taking off shoes is not something we do. Most of the world does that. And, and strangers don't take off their shoes when they go to somebody's house because they're not invited in, right? You have some guy at your front door and he's, you're talking to him. If you say, come on in, and he takes his shoes off, what's that mean? They're welcome. It means you're going to be spending some time with them. You, you out of respect, you out of honoring them, you out of showing respect and honor to their home, you take off your shoes. And what happens when your shoes are off? That's, that's, a, that's a sign of, of uh, familiarity, isn't it? To let somebody see your feet sitting in their house. <laughs> that's... that's you're saying we're pretty close to each other. Our shoes are off and we're sitting together. 
And in essence, for Moses, this is a moment. God said, I'm creating a moment here. But this moment has the power of God, the presence of God. History from this burning bush moment forward is going to change the course of history. God intervening in this supernatural, powerful way. God typically doesn't do that. Throughout history, God's given us a free will. God's given us his ways, his statutes, and and we walk in them. And and God wants to to see what we create. God wants to see our choices and, and what we do with the power and the money and the time and the energy we have. So most of the time, God doesn't intervene. I mean, God intervened and Peter sort of walked on water, but it's not everybody's going to walk on water now that's Christian. It's just not going to be the case. God, God made manna come out of heaven. But that doesn't mean that's going to be the norm. He's going to be everybody who's saved gets manna from heaven in their backyard. Now, these are, these are unique moments in time where God put his thumb on the scale of human history. And, and, and he's like, understand, Moses, that this is a sacred moment. And you need to treat it with the weight that it really does have. Take off your shoes. This is God putting his thumb on the scale of history and he's going to do it through you. David in the Psalms talks about that. In Psalms 115.3, but our God is in heaven. He does what he pleases. Psalms 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and in the deep places. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things that are not yet coming, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar was repenting, he said, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He, God, does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can restrain the hand of God or say to him, what have you done? Then, of course, Ephesians 1.11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's an awesome thing when God, in those few moments in our life, a few spots in our life, meets us. I know being born again for some of you might be an amazing thing. For some of you, really starting to walk as a disciple and really seeking after God was a moment in time God met you. Well, for Moses, this, this was a moment in time that was going to shake all of the history. Interesting, he says here, I am the God of your father, singular. First of all, notice that. He, he goes on and says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he first doesn't say, I'm the God of your fathers, as usually it's said. But here it's singular. It, it makes me wonder if God wasn't saying, Moses, I'm the God of your father, the guy who's a slave back in Egypt, who's a very old man now. <laughs> I, 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 I'm hearing that insignificant slave in Egypt who's suffering 
It makes it personal. I mean, Moses is here. He's got his own sheep. He's forgot about his sister and his, his brother and his parents. He's forgot about them. It's, it's, he's doing his own thing out here in Saudi Arabia, Egypt. I haven't thought about it in 40 years, you know. I'm doing my own thing. And God says, what about your dad? I'm here to talk to you on a very personal point here. I'm the father of your slave, elderly, struggling, insignificant dad. But I'm also equally the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look upon God. Yeah, that's the way it should be. Even in heaven right now, sheriffim are flying around the throne and God had to create them with six wings, two to cover their feet because feet are unholy and uncouth. Two wings in the middle to fly with and then two more wings to cover their face. And all they say is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. And they fly around the throne continually saying that. It's almost like the presence of God is so powerful and so awesome that if those seraphim stopped, even heaven itself would shake with a great shake and, and, and end up in tiny pieces. Wow. Later, God would tell Moses in Exodus thirty three twenty, no man can see my face and live. <laughs> and judges Gideon after he saw God, he said, that's it, I'm dead. Because this is what they believed at this time. If you're looking at God, it's because you're dead. Samson's parents, they thought they were dead when they saw God. And his wife said, hey, we're not dead. So, you know, we saw God and lived. I can't believe it. Jesus said that in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And we'll quit right there in verse 6 and pick up next week because chapter 3 and chapter 4 both are the burning bush story. But we'll pick up there in verse 7 next week. And Lord, we come before you now, Lord. Because I do believe, Lord, you have more for us tonight. Not just to be brought into your presence through the word, but to be brought into your presence to, that we would come now. We've turned aside. You don't need a burning bush. We're already here looking at you. We're already here and our hearts are already saying, without you speaking to us in some audible way through some burning bush or some angel or some soldier or some wrestler or some Melchizedek, we're, we're here truly by faith. As you told Thomas, that blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. Lord, we're here and we're saying, Lord, here I am. Here I am, Lord. Hmm. Let's just spend a few minutes here praying and crying out to God.